Hey, Unchained listeners. As you know, it's hard keeping up with the fast-paced world of crypto, so we've got just the thing for you. Subscribe to our free Unchained daily newsletter at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. You'll get the latest crypto news and original articles from our reporters, as well as summaries of other happenings and bullet points, plus our meme of the day, all curated and written by our amazing team. It's still your no-hype resource for all things crypto, just in newsletter form. Sign up at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Again, the URL is unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Unchained, your no-hype resource for all things crypto. I'm your host, Laura Shin. Subscribe to Unchained on YouTube, where you can watch the videos of me and my guests. Go to youtube.com slash C slash Unchained Podcast and subscribe today. Tea Quorum is a weekly virtual series about all things Tezos. Every Wednesday, join thought leaders, innovators, and blockchain enthusiasts for presentations about the latest advancements that help the ecosystem grow together. Sign up and learn more about the virtual series at tquorum.com. Crypto.com is waiving the 3.5% credit card fee for all crypto purchases until the end of September. Download the Crypto.com app today. Today's guest is Vitalik Buterin, the creator of Ethereum. Welcome, Vitalik. Hi, Laura. Nice to be here. First of all, congratulations on the five-year anniversary of Ethereum. Thank you. Yay. (laughs) So glad that we're finally here. So something that's really funny is you and I did our last interview a little over a year ago, and afterward, uh, this, this was for the live event I did in New York, one of the attendees wrote me, and yelled at me saying that because I asked you tough questions that you would never do an interview with me again. So I'm happy that we are proving that person wrong. Yay. <laughs> um, so upon the five-year anniversary of the Ethereum network being live, what are your main thoughts and feelings? I mean, Ethereum has definitely come a long way in the last five years. And it's definitely been really striking to just see the change. Uh, just see how much change uh, there has been, and even just see how more and more of the change is just outside of my and even outside of the Ethereum Foundation's control. So, like, if you remember Ethereum in 2014 and 2015, it was this much uh, kind of smaller, tighter-knit community. Everyone who was doing anything important uh, and knew each other and was coordinating really closely. There was myself, there was Gavin, there was the the developer team, other Vlad, um, and, uh, some other people, and everyone was uh, kind of very closely talking to each other. And then uh, just kind of over time, there just started to be more and more people coming into the community, right? So I remember DEFCON 1 in London was this big uh, kind of coming out party for Ethereum in a lot of ways. And that was when uh, Microsoft announced their cooperation with Ethereum uh, for the first time. And like, that was huge, right? Like, in 2020, it's like, you know, eh, okay, it's another bank, another software company doing something. But in 2015, it's like, whoa, you mean a big software company is doing blockchain things? <laughs> um, and, you know, since then, there were a lot of these different banking groups uh, doing things on blockchains. Uh, there have been uh, a lot of just independent individual projects that all have their own stories. You know, Augur um, is uh, pretty big and has its own story. Maker is uh, quite big and has its own story, as do all of these other kind of sub-communities within the Ethereum ecosystem that are 
at this point, even even themselves bigger than Ethereum was uh, five years ago. And so just uh, kind of seeing that expansion and uh, just continuing nonstop, you know, going from 2014 to 2016 and then the big you're going to bubble uh, and then even past the bubble, right? It's like the hype died down, but I think uh, you know, the communities continued to expand in a lot of ways and just seeing that happen has been incredible and seeing the technology progress has been incredible, seeing things like... Uh, Proof of stake progress from being, you know, not sure if they can even work to an idea, to a white paper, to a spec, to now um, a yeah, public multi-client test network has been uh, wonderful as well. So, you know, lots of uh, great things are happening, and I'm very happy that lots of great things are happening. I solicited some questions on Twitter, and there was an interesting one from someone whose handle was Mr. Kim Crypto. And he said, what would you change if you could do it all over again? There's definitely like a lot of little things. And, and some of them are technical little things like, you know, like using a, a binary tree instead of a hexary tree. And there's like 50 different things like that that like sound really boring. But if we did them, we would have been like a year closer to Ethereum 2.0 by now. But um, aside from that, there's also a kind of, social things. And in a lot of ways, the social things are one of the more interesting things, right? So things like, for example, just the way that the project started and uh, kind of the history of starting off with this uh, kind of big and heavy development team um, that's like, yeah, as opposed to kind of starting with a smaller and kind of more development focused effort, that was uh, one of the things that I might have done differently. And, and wait, the distinction you're making when you said big and heavy development team, did you mean the business side? Yeah, yes. Oh, okay. Side. Yes. So big and heavy, not just development team. Um, and and the, I think, like, for example, the grant program has been great, and we could have been in a much better place had we started that like two or three years earlier than we did. So a lot of things that the Ethereum Foundation has been kind of doing over the last two years has in many ways been just kind of correcting for some of the things that we've did, that we did in the years before that and just trying to fix all of the mistakes. And uh, had we known then everything that we know now, then of course, then we would have just started doing the correct thing from day one. Aside like from that, I mean, I'm sure there's lots of mistakes that we're still making, but Sometimes you don't know what the mistakes are, you know, because if you knew what the mistakes are, then you would find a way to stop making them. <laughs> right, right. And so let's talk about an issue right now that a lot of people are talking about. I'm sure you're well aware that one of the chief complaints at the moment is the high gas fees. What do you mm. plan to do about that? And what solution do you think would be best to bring them down? Mm -hmm. So... Ultimately, high gas prices are just a function of high demand, right? Like lots of people want to send Ethereum transactions on the blockchain and there's not enough space for them. And so people just keep uh, kind of outbidding each other, trying to be the ones that get in. So ultimately, there's only two ways to get gas prices down. One is to get people to stop wanting to use Ethereum. And the other is to find a, a way to increase the amount of space. So first of all, I should say the first one is like slightly less ridiculous than it sounds, right? Because there are specific cases where people are using the Ethereum blockchain in ways that where they don't really need to be using it for every single thing that they're using it for, right? So even just to give one example, just 
a lot of the kind of DeFi arbitrage things that are happening. Like they involve people sending lots of transactions and some of them getting on chain. And a lot of the time, just the transactions that get on chain are transactions that just don't do anything because they're like the first, they're not the first to, to get in in a race or whatever. Right. So like that kind of category exists. Like there is a lot of room for applications to and if increase their efficiency. Sometimes it even involves moving things off chain and all of these things. And I know that application teams are definitely working really hard on that. But at the same time, the more and if interesting and long-term viable thing is obviously increasing scalability, right? And scalability is this thing that we've been talking about for more than five years. And like every major Ethereum presentation from me, you can find, I probably mentioned scalability. Um, and, you know, big problems we're working on, privacy, scalability, user experience, security. What, 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 what did I forget? Something scalability. <laughs> um, I get the difference now, of course, is that instead of just being this kind of faraway theory thing, it's this uh, kind of very short-term necess- necessary reality that we uh, have to find a way to work around. And the good news is that um, a lot of the scalability solutions are much further ahead now than they were at any time in the past. Uh, so Ethereum 2.0 is, of course, the big one that people talk about. And you know, we talk about proof of stake, which is coming very, very soon. But then there's sharding, and sharding is phase one and not phase zero. So sharding is going to take a bit longer than the kind of the launch of, it, of the East2 blockchain by itself. So East2 is, uh, of course, really important and big, but at the same time, it is uh, kind of farther away than some of the other things. But the good news is that there are these other and closer things in the pipeline, right? So like rollups are one thing that I just mention all the time, right? Rollups being this kind of really wonderful scalability technique that basically says, instead of uh, doing everything on chain, you just... Uh, put a very kind of minimum and compressed amount of information on chain that just basically tells people how they should update the state. So how they should update kind of the internal record keeping of this rollup system, you know, who has how much money in the rollup. And then instead of putting things like like signatures, for example, on chain and verifying them on chain, you just have one zero knowledge proof that just says, here's a proof that that, that these thousands of signatures exist. And I'm not going to tell you what the signatures are, but you know, here's a proof that says that they exist. And and because it's a cryptographic proof, you can now trust that these transactions are all valid. Or alternatively, you can can combine all of these signatures together and add them all into one big signature and then say, you know, if anyone can prove that this block is invalid, they can submit a challenge. And only if there's a challenge does any computation happen on chain, right? So the first family I talked about is the ZK rollup. The second family I talked about is the optimistic rollup. They've made a, both made a lot of progress, right? So like ZK rollups are already live on Ethereum. Uh, so, you know, if you saw Loopring, um, the decentralized exchange, and um, it's this uh, Ch- uh, Chinese uh, Ethereum company, they've been just putting out this decentralized exchange and, and uh, it's basically just a system of Ethereum contracts and it's been running for a while and it's worked great. Uh, ZK Stink, uh, the one from uh, Matter Labs, is so... Both of those exist and you can use them. They both even have built-in payments. So I think for ZK rollups, the challenge is that it's like people love Ethereum because Ethereum lets you go beyond just moving coins around, right? Like if you just want to move coins around, then like, you know, whatever, there's like 
master coin or like SLP on Bitcoin Cash or like any other of these things, right? Like the the true power of Ethereum is that it does it's not just about that. It's also about all these other things. And so like moving coins around is a big part of what people use Ethereum for. But if you want to expand beyond that, then like zero knowledge proofs are not yet friendly enough for that. In the future, they will be, right? But we're still a couple of years away. So that's one problem. But if you just want to move coins around, then like the only challenge is that we just have to get all of these, you know, wallets and exchanges and teams kind of to just work together and adopt the thing. Well, one thing I wanted to ask was earlier when you talked about how the high gas fees reflect high demands. Um, Alex Mousmatch, who he's the guy who's mm. selling shares of himself on, via a coin, he had a question, which was what percentage of Ethereum block space is used for valuable actions versus bad ones? So I'm curious mm. what your thoughts are on that. Figuring out what's actually valuable is such a tough thing, right? From one standpoint, you could argue that anything that people are willing to pay a 50 way per gas for is valuable for, because, well, by paying that transaction fee, they clearly say it's valuable. But on the other hand, there's a lot of uh, activity happening that's like clearly involves, you know, these zone of competitive games between different people, like just like even, you know, DeFi arbitrage where everyone's just sending a transaction on chain and a lot of them end up failing. And it would be nicer if uh, that entire kind of Basically, what's happening there is kind of like an auction between all of these arbitragers. If that could happen more efficiently in some way, then like, you really could clear out a lot of, uh, of Ethereum blockchain space, and that wouldn't actually hurt anyone. There's a lot of cases like that. And then there's obviously applications on the chain that people just might think are outright bad. So, you know, Ponzi's are one example, and, the, and there's always like, a couple of them somewhere. So... It's complicated, I and mean, I, I definitely think that the, the great majority of uh, the of the activity uh, is um, kind of valuable and not the sort that you can just uh, kind of remove by you know make, kind of coming up with a with a, a slightly better game in some way. I don't know. It's hard to say. It's uh, I mean one of the kind of disadvantages of an open system is that they just you just get all sorts of characters from all around the world building things on it. So it's hard to tell. And speaking of complexity, let's now talk about Ethereum 2.0, which, mm. I, you know, just for me, somebody who spends a lot of time trying to figure out how to convey things to other people, especially when it comes to this space, I find it quite complicated. And I mm -hmm. believe that it would be something that would also be complicated for validators to understand and for them to make a cost benefit analysis and in general for them to assess what their risks are. And mm -hmm. it, it reminded me a little bit of how DeFi composability intru introduces a lot of risks because mm -hmm. protocol creators can't always foresee what other protocols will introduce. And so I just wonder, do you think that complexity of Ethereum 2.0 does create a risk for the security of the network? It definitely does. And that, that's a big part of the reason why we've been working really hard to try to make the protocol simpler. Like, I definitely think that it's twice as simple now as, uh, as it was a, a year and a half ago, which has been um, a, a very significant thing of leap for us. But at the same time, there's definitely complexity that's unavoidable in some ways, right? Like, uh, you know, if you have a regular blockchain that everyone's just validating everything, if you have a sharded blockchain, then you need some kind of rules for figuring out 
you know, who's validating what blocks at what time. And that's just like more code that has to be in there that wouldn't be in there if we weren't charting and there's no way around it. Uh, even in like proof of stake, for example, like one of its disadvantages is that it's definitely a bit more technologically uh, complex because like you have to deal with validators. You have to figure out like what's the process for validators logging in? What's the process for validators logging out? And there's a lot of just kind of management happening in the protocol. So that definitely does exist. Though at the same time, I do think a lot of it is uh, just the fact that people are less familiar than with a proof of stake. And so it feels more like an unknown unknown to them. What actually is the chance that something is crazy is going to happen on chain? I don't know. We don't know what it's like. How many people are actually going to be willing to validate at an interest rate of nine or reward rate of nine percent? I don't know. So, like these are the sorts of things that, like, unfortunately, you just can't make answers to until you have a live running system. So, like, I think it's perfectly fair for a lot of people to just kind of say we're sitting out of the thing until for uh, it just runs by itself for one to two years, and that's perfectly fine. There, there are so many things I want to discuss around this, but let's maybe just talk about. ETH price at the beginning, mm. because one of the things that I gleaned is that the security of Ethereum 2.0 will be highly reliant on the stability and the value of the price. And historically, Ethereum has not been one of those crypto networks that has focused quite a bit on price, especially compared to some of the other coins. So I wondered mm-hmm. if you thought that staking will usher in a new era in which Ethereum does focus on the price of ETH and on issues like monetary policy. It's hard to kind of figure out like what concrete actions could reduce price volatility, for example, right? And if you look at Ethereum versus a lot of these other coins, like Ethereum's price volatility is not necessarily that high. Like it's statistically definitely higher than Bitcoin, but it's lower than a lot of these other uh, smaller cryptocurrencies and even the ones that say, you know, rah, rah, look, we have a fixed cap and so you should trust us more. So, like, there's some aspects of uh, kind of monetary properties of ETH asset that just can't be engineered no matter how hard you try. There are other aspects um, that, you know, you can look at, right? So, like, one of the big uh, kind of discussions happening in the Ethereum community is this uh, kind of market reform uh, debate around the EIP-1559, um, where we basically it's this... Uh, kind of very significant uh, proposed reform to how transaction fees work that basically says that instead of having a fixed block size and the kind of transaction fees constantly jumping around, uh, you would have a kind of very short-term variable block sizes and the transaction fee would be kind of stabilized more and it would not move much between one block to the other. And this, uh, and there's a lot of reasons why this would improve economic efficiency, but one of the other things that it does is it basically means that some portion of uh, coins and transaction fees get burned, which of course means that you know it, it reduces issuance and potentially, like if there's enough uh, transaction fees, it could even give ETH negative issuance, right? So, if you even look at like the transaction fees on the Ethereum network the last two weeks, it's been somewhere between you know, two thousand and five thousand Ether per day, and if you kind of expand that out to per year, then it's looking like well. 700,000 to like 1.7 million Ether a year, which is higher than the uh, proof of stake issuance that we're expecting, right? So it's actually, I mean, negative issuance is not even far outside the realm of possibility for Ethereum. 
And there's a lot of people in the Ethereum community that are like excited about this and that is kind of actively want us to start uh, you know, talking about monetary policy, taking monetary policy seriously, um, and all of these things. And we, which is interesting. And, and it's, it's also kind of a sign of, uh, the project's decentralization in some ways. Like that, that, that kind of push towards taking, um, ETH's, uh, monetary properties more seriously is like, was definitely not an Ethereum foundation thing, right? Like it was, just these community members that just like stood up and said, you know, hey, we have ETH and ETH is an asset and but you should care more about ETH the asset and they're kind of not talk as though the price doesn't matter because the reality is that if the price goes down by 90%, then like we go bankrupt and, and realistically the platform security goes down and the platform breaks. And that would be true in proof of work or proof of stake, right? Like in proof of work, if the price of ETH drops by a factor of 10, then Suddenly, the Ethereum proof of work miners would have to go and compete with, uh, you know, Ethereum Classic and Dogecoin and all these other coins. And uh, like when a coin stops being the dominant coin within its kind of class of proof of work hardware, then it becomes much easier for, for miners to come in from the outside and attack it. And so really, price has always been a, uh, a blockchain security concern. It's just people are and are more willing to talk about it honestly now than in the past. And what about you? What camp do you put yourself in? Because you sort of talked about it as if you mm-hmm. are not in that camp of wanting to place an emphasis on it. But the thing is that, mm-hmm. is, I mean, okay, so you have your role mm-hmm. at the foundation, but you also have your role as a researcher. And I would imagine mm-hmm. as a researcher focused on security, you would recognize that price mm-hmm. is a linchpin in the security of Ethereum 2.0. Mm-hmm. No, I definitely think uh, price is important for security and it's important for a lot of things. I mean, I think um, maybe one kind of difference in emphasis is that like if you have ETH and you're interested in like basically ETH as a kind of get rich asset, then you care about, you know, the chance that the probability that it goes up to 10,000. But if you care about the value of ETH for network security purposes or even for making sure the ecosystem continues to have funding or for you know, just like plain old a kind of stability to ensure the utility of ETH, then the thing you care more about is the price of ETH not dropping to zero. Those are two kind of somewhat different kinds of uh, caring about the price, right? Like one focuses more on you know maximizing the upside and the other focuses more on just minimizing downside risk. So I mean, I think... There is definitely a kind of convergence of goals there between, um, you know, people who hold ETH because they want it to go up and uh, people who you, you know, realize that ETH having value is necessary for security. But there is also kind of this other divergence as well. But I mean, in practice, uh, I, I don't think it, it ends up causing that much of a disagreement. And so it sounds like ultimately you think the monetary for monetary policy for ETH will be variable. It sounds like sometimes it will mm. be deflationary and sometimes it will be inflationary. And it just sort of depends on what's happening with demand on the network. Mm-hmm. That's definitely the current path. And I mean, this has definitely also been another one of the kind of big debates for us. Like, on the one hand, you know, we recognize that there's kind of meme value in having a, a cap. And, you know, there's the value in being able to say, you know, the, pr- the price will, or the, the market cap, sorry, 
the token supply will never go above 150 million. We're going to go not one step backward from here. And uh, even coming, going out and saying crazy things like, if the Ethereum protocol ever changes so there's more than 150 million Ether, then it is no longer Ethereum. Um, you know, like these things that like coin supply maximalists say, which are kind of obviously false, but kind of motivational at the same time. And uh, like we are, posture has always been to kind of not go in that direction. Basically, our kind of line is that like ultimately there's a trade-off between stability of the coin supply and stability of the security level of the blockchain. And ultimately, Ethereum isn't a coin first. It's a, a, a worldwide decentralized technology platform first. And so security, uh, stability of the security level is more important than stability of the coin supply. And then at the same time, like we definitely kind of recognize what we're missing out on by taking that path. So, oh no, and it's a difficult question. I think like the community's views and like my own and a lot of people's views are definitely still kind of in flux on this. Yeah, and earlier when you talked about how right now you are making these theoretical assumptions about what will happen with Ethereum 2.0, but ultimately you won't really know until it goes live. I saw that you read this economic review of Ethereum 2.0 that was put out by researchers mm -hmm. at Consensus. And in that, they assert that the cost of perpetrating attacks on Ethereum 2.0 will be lower than in Ethereum 1.0. And they advocated that there be a minimum of 13.8% of the network supply of ETH uh, be staked. And mm -hmm. afterward, you tweeted that you disagreed and you thought it didn't need to be mm -hmm. that high. And so it... It strikes me that, you know, you admitted earlier you really don't know, but wouldn't mm -hmm. it be kind of better to err on the side of caution in this case? So, like, I feel like we have strong uh, kind of outside of you arguments uh, to uh, for why a attacking a proof of work chain should be much or, or sorry, attacking a proof of stake chain should be much more expensive than attacking a proof of work chain. Right. The outside of you argument basically is that, like, if you look at what a proof of work mining rig does. Like it mines and it mines for maybe one or two years and then you have to buy another one. And even while it's running, you have to pay for a lot of electricity and you have to do a lot of maintenance. And so the cost of a mining rig should realistically target somewhere around like one year, maybe one and a half years of issuance, right? Basically what that would, or the cost of all the mining rigs that are currently out there rather should target um, a, maybe a year to one and a half years of issuance, right? Because like that's, roughly the time horizon within which these, those mining rigs are going to be actually working, a kind of subtracting out electricity and maintenance and like Moore's law and all of those things. But with proof of stake, if you have coins, then like the coins aren't going to just burn after one and a half years of staking, right? Like after one and a half years of staking, you can just get your coins out again. And so kind of we should expect the ratio between kind of the cost of the backing assets and the cost of the rewards to be much higher in proof of stake than um, it, it is in proof of work, right? And that's like, that's something I told them. And uh, that, that's something that, like, I remember when I did my my own uh, kind of quick cal calculations on kind of the cost of proof of work ASICs, I definitely got a number that was substantially lower than theirs. But I mean, I don't know, I mean, it's definitely a kind of, a puzzle like what's um in that analysis and um, there's i mean i'd definitely be happy to just talk to them more and just like, 
see how to kind of get these different perspectives to line up with each other. Yeah. And one other thing that I wanted to ask about was, and maybe this is just me not knowing the system that well, but when I was reading their economic review, it seemed that in most situations, staking would be profitable, but at low prices, the net yield for stakers does go into the negative. And I wondered if there was some mechanism that's similar to the difficulty mining algorithm in Bitcoin that then mm-hmm. makes staking more profitable if it goes if the if the net profit goes into the negative so as to incentivize more people to stake and push the price up. Because otherwise mm-hmm. it just seems like then you could end up in these like death spiral type situations. Right. I mean it's a challenge, right? Because if you respond to uh kind of prices dropping by increasing the issuance rate, then you risk entering into another kind of death spiral, which is like price goes down, print more coins, price goes down more, print goes both coins, and you get some, um, uh, you know, Ethereum goes uh, the, the way of um, all of these hyperinflating fiat currencies. And so, look, we definitely don't want that, right? And I think like the challenge with the that sharded blockchains do have is basically that like if you have a blockchain where the capacity of the blockchain is like n times bigger than the capacity of one single computer then ultimately you need to have at least n computers in the watch somewhere in the network for it to be able to process all those transactions right and I mean, actually, you would need somewhere like more than n times 200 because you want redundancy, but like, you know, you get how you need at least n, n plus like some factor, right? The problem, of course, is that in the worst case, if people stop caring about Ethereum and the size of the user community goes down to n minus one, then you're kind of screwed no matter what the mechanism is, right? So there's this uh, kind of mathematical challenge here that the kind of sharded chains do have. And I think like this problem is actually one of the things that's probably going to end up putting limits on the capacity of a sharded blockchain, right? Like, so we're doing 64 shards with uh, kind of an eye to pushing up to 1,024 eventually. And then some people might ask, well, why are you sticking with this kind of what we call quadratic sharding, just kind of two-layer structure where you just have shards of shards? Like, why not just go all the way and have shards of shards of shards and then go up to infinity? And the answer basically is like, well, if you put the number of shards to be really high, then if the size of the community drops to below what you were expecting, then the network can't really verify anything and you're kind of screwed again, right? Ideally, of course, what you would want actually is you would want a system that says if the price of the currency drops, then like if the US dollar price of the currency drops, then uh, kind of dial down the capacity of each of these shards and try to dial down the number of shards or whatever and to kind of scale down the size of the system, right? But the problem is that it's hard for blockchains to have built-in price oracles. Um, like, you know, it's hard to make oracles kind of decentralized enough for, for uh, kind of a layer a layer one. And so we have this problem where either a sharded system has to be kind of much smaller than it otherwise would be, which is the path that Ethereum is going, uh, or a sharded system has to kind of dynamically scale up and down with some metric of how big its community is. And the problem is that the blockchain has no way of measuring how big its community is because, you know, civil attacks and all of that stuff. So like the, the economic kind of price dependence is, ba- is actually like basically a version of that same problem, right? Like it basically says that, you know, if the price goes down a lot and so people are less, uh, 
I'm just interested in the uh, Ethereum network, then the Ethereum network uh, maybe no longer has the ability to compensate all of these people just for running nodes that are part of the chain. Um, and we do have some ways of uh, kind of partially dealing with this, right? So like, for example, one thing that would happen in that kind of scenario, like if uh, there were low prices and people dropped out, is that the amount of ETH stakes would end up uh, dropping. And once the amount of ETH stakes drops below a certain amount, like I think it's either 4 million or 8 million, I forget, then what happens is that the shards uh, sometimes start skipping slots. So like basically you, you, you stop having every shard have one block every slot. And so the capacity of the system kind of starts uh, uh, shrinking because of that. And so there is a kind of a bit of this auto adjusting mechanic that helps uh, kind of stabilize the chain in that case. But, um, you know, it's definitely far from perfect. And there are kind of just fundamental impossibilities that we have to whack against. All right. So in a moment, we're going to talk more about issues regarding proof of stake as well as DeFi. But first, a quick word from the sponsors who make this show possible. How much in fees are you paying for your crypto purchases? Crypto.com is waiving the 3.5% credit card fee for all crypto purchases, which means you can buy crypto with a 0% fee. Apart from your crypto purchases, you can also get a great deal on food and grocery shopping too. Get up to 10% back on Uber Eats, McDonald's, Domino's Pizza, Walmart, and many more when you pay with your MCO Visa card. No card? On the Crypto.com app, buy gift cards and get up to 20% back from merchants like Whole Foods, Safeway, Burger King, Papa John's, and Domino's. Download the Crypto.com app today and enjoy these offers till the end of September. Looking for a place to connect with thought leaders, innovators, and blockchain enthusiasts of every level? Welcome to Tea Quorum, a weekly virtual series about all things Tezos. Each week we'll feature presentations about the latest advancements, from baking and staking and developer tooling to DeFi projects and community content that will help the ecosystem grow together. This year, Tea Quorum will be opening up its podium to you. If you're interested in presenting, submit your ideas and the Tezos community will vote on who they'd like to hear from next. Sign up and learn more about the virtual series at tquorum.com. Back to my conversation with Vitalik Buterin. I also got a good question from Tarun Chitra of Gauntlet Network. And he pointed out that existing proof-of-stake networks have run into capital constraint issues for some of their validators. And that some you know individuals in particular find it unprofitable to be validators and they can't realize economies of scale without professional validation setup similar to what you get from mm -hmm. Amazon Web Services. So mm -hmm. how do you think Ethereum's proof of stake system can be more democratic? Mm -hmm. So I think uh, there's two major differences in the incentive structure between Ethereum and a lot of these other chains, right? So one of them is that um, a lot of these other systems uh, end up uh, kind of implicitly making the assumption that they expect like the majority of their participants or a really, really huge number of participants to stake, right? And they set the numbers um, and they try to basically create a situation where like 80% of people are staking or 50% of people are staking or some other fairly huge number like that. And Ethereum is not doing that, right? Ethereum is basically targeting, you know, somewhere between five and 30% staking as the kind of the level that we're kind of expecting slash wanting with the wanting probably being a kind of a bit on the higher side of that. But, you know, if it's lower, that's fine too. 
Um, so that's one part of the response, right? Which is that like we're explicitly expecting there to be kind of fewer stakers than a lot of these other networks, and that's fine. The other part of the response is that our incentive structure is like deliberately designed to be very forgiving, right? So like a lot of these other chains, they have staking incentive structures that basically say if you're online less than like 95% or 90% of the time, then like you start getting these penalties very quickly. Um, and Ethereum is not like that, right? In Ethereum, you know, you can be net profitable even if you're on offline like 30% or potentially even 40% of the time. Ethereum is like basically designed, uh, at least in terms of its incentives, for kind of more immature stakers that potentially kind of have their setups break more often. Um, and that was a deliberate design choice. Like we're definitely not deliberately trying to kind of engineer for a high performance network. Like basically because you know if you engineer for a high performance network, then like you risk creating incentives for everyone to start like concentrating in the same cloud computing setups. And then are you really decentralized? Are you really censorship resistant and all of these things? So like in Ethereum, you know, we've made a lot of these conservative choices, like, you know, target the, the, the percentage online that we're targeting. I mean, even the test debts are like off, they jump between 80 to 95%, I think. Whereas like, I think Cosmos or some of these other networks, they just constantly stay considerably above 95%. I mean, in other places, uh, the 12 second slot time, right? So Ethereum's uh, slot time, Ethereum 2 slot time is 12 seconds. And in the future, I could see a decreasing to eight seconds or six seconds, but you know, we're never going to go all the way to one second, whereas some of these other chains are. Uh, so yeah, there's a lot of these uh, kind of trade-offs that we're making where we are kind of definitely refuse to, you know, satisfy a lot of people's needs for peak performance, but. <laughs> And I think the re- the result is more resilience. Okay, yeah, Taruna and his um, colleague, or actually, I think it's Alex Evans of Placeholder. They wrote up a great post on how staking actually lends itself to the kind of securitization that looks very similar to mortgage-backed securities. Did you see that post? I think I saw it. I don't remember too well. It was a while back. Yeah, it's about just lending mm-hmm. and um, yeah, but I mean, granted, obviously these products are more transparent uh, because mm-hmm. all this happens in a smart contract, but they pointed out these are the kinds of financial products that did lead to the creation of Bitcoin. So we were curious mm-hmm. what your opinion was on that. Honestly, I'm less worried about staking and more worried about existing DeFi. <laughs> and I guess the, the thing with staking is that and I definitely would expect the uh, kind of staking setups to just remain fairly simple because like there's, well, basically either you're staking yourself or you're giving your money to someone else who stakes for you. And like, maybe you can like trunch things beyond that. And you could say, oh, here's a slight, like a, a contract and it gives uh, 80% um, of the first 80% of the ETH to the holder of one coin and the last 20%, which is much more in a performance dependent to the holder of another coin. And then uh, you can concentrate the kind of um, ownership of these tokens that represent like basically interest in really high quality staking and all of these things. But generally, like, I guess I just, I'm not expecting the complexity of just that part to go too high. But the, the places where the complexity can go high is basically if people want 
either just a lot of the things that people are doing with ex- with existing uh, these DeFi projects, so kind of trying to get leverage on different assets and trying to get uh, financial arrangements that kind of satisfy like, very specific functions and yield farming and all of these things, or potentially kind of those things plus proof of stake, right? So like, you could imagine, like, you, you know, there is lending ETH, but then you could imagine a system that allows you to lend staked ETH. And if you're lending staked ETH, then suddenly it starts mattering, well, who is doing the staking? There's definitely concerns. I guess my kind of big picture reason why I'm not too scared is basically that if we just maintain this really kind of important property that says that if an attack happens, then lots of people, lots of coins get destroyed, right? If you just maintain that invariant that they, if an attack happens, then five million coins that were respond that were responsible for the attack get destroyed somehow. Then you know that well, the maximum that you can have is like ten attacks before half the ETH gets destroyed, and at that point, no one's ever no one's going to be interested in staking in any financial setup ever again, right? So, like, this is part of why I'm really into you know security deposits and penalties and slashing and all of these things, even though other a lot of other people are not. Like, I just like this aspect that it basically lets you kind of put a cap on the number of times the thing breaks, basically. Okay, yeah. I mean, there are so many things we could discuss because a part of me does wonder now also about this proliferation of derivatives and how that introduces new ways for people to profit by destroying the price of ether. But instead of let's going instead of going down that rabbit hole, I actually want to ask you more about your criticisms of DeFi. What are your main mm. criticisms and concerns? Hmm. I think uh, one big one is just that a lot of people are underestimating smart contract risk. And uh, so, like, I remember even a year ago, like, there were people on Twitter, I think it was, making the case that, you know, hey, if uh, you have dollars in a regular bank account, then you're making maybe 2% interest, and that assumes, you know, like some kind of fixed uh, deposit, whatever. And if it's variable, then it's even less. Um, and it, but if you put your dollars into uh, compounds and you're getting 4%, well, why the hell would anyone choose 2% over 4%? Clearly, 4% is better. Or even if, if you put your dollars in DAI, clearly, 4% back when it was 4%, clearly, 4% is better. And my response was, well, 4% is only better than 2% if those systems are exactly the same in every other way, right? And in fact, for the 4% system to be better than the 2% system, you basically need the 4% system to have less than a 2% chance a year of breaking, right? Because if the 4% system has a 5% chance a year of breaking, then it becomes negative 1%. And so I feel like there's a lot of people that are just not fully taking this into account in some of their calculations. And, you know, they might think that, Oh, okay. It's been safe for a while. It's been safe for a while. And these projects are audited. And like a lot of these DeFi projects really have like done a, a great job of uh, auditing themselves and just doing a way better job of that and learning from the mistakes of the DAO and all of those things. But at the same time, you know, are we safe enough that we can promise a chance of breaking of less than 2% a year? I don't, I don't think we can get there yet. Right. So like that's one thing. And so I think, uh, and if, the main takeaway from that criticism, I guess, is that DeFi is still fine, but like, don't act like it's a place where you should advocate for a lot of regular people to put, uh, to put their life savings into. Now, 
There are, of course, places where, you know, CFI, uh, and uh, as in the traditional banking system, has risks too, right? And like, there's a lot of people who, because of their specific context, like their money might get seized or like their local currency might get hyperinflated or all these things. And so like, if you're in one of those situations where the, the risks of the centralized uh, stuff is uh, greater than 2% a year from you, then, you know, by all means, get into DeFi and it's safer. Um, but, or at least, when I say DeFi, in this case, I mean stable coins, right? Get into stable coins and they're safer. Um, but like, if you're just in uh, DeFi to get, you know, four percent interest instead of two percent interest, then like that's probably not something you should be doing. So that's one thing. The other thing is that there are a lot sometimes DeFi things happening that are not very sustainable. Right. So like one big example of this is like yield farming. Right. So like this has been this big hot trend that we've been seeing recently. And you can often get these really high interest rates. that was like 20 percent, 30 percent, you know, 100 plus percent annually. But the problem is that these interest rates are ultimately they're paid for by rewards explicitly provided by whatever protocol is uh, is doing the lending. Right. Like they're either provided by Compound or they're provided by whoever else. So like I forget what the acronyms are these days. And those guys are not going to just keep on printing coins for people to to entice people to get into their ecosystems forever, right? It's a short-term thing, and like once the enticements disappear, you can easily see the yield rates like drop back down very close to zero percent. So it's not a that's not something that could make DeFi break, but it definitely is a sign that like. We should not necessarily be treating a kind of temporary advantages that we have now as reasons or as uh, things that we be, should be pushing in front of out in front of the entire world as like reasons why everyone should get into DeFi. Because if you push them out to the entire world, then by the time people start getting into DeFi, these uh, kind of temporary advantages are not going to be there anymore. Well, so I want to ask you how it makes you feel that that like DeFi right now and yield farming in particular, mm-hmm. kind of the main things that Ethereum is either used for, at least known for, or it's kind of, you know, what people are talking about when it comes to Ethereum. And before that ICOs, which I know you also at the time of the ICO craze, you tweeted um, critically about those. And, the, you know, all those things have been the major use cases of Ethereum so far. So how does it mm-hmm. make you feel to see that your creation is being used for those things and and two part question what can you do to steer things more in a direction of how you'd like to see ethereum being used i definitely think uh, that you know, those things aren't the only use cases and i definitely you know, just keep uh, kind of discovering people using ethereum for you know, lots of other things like there's people that just to use ease for payments there's people that use um, ease to uh, just you know, move money from one country to another. There's even people using ETH for in-person payments. So, and I even uh, used ETH to pay at a restaurant in London a few months ago. So, like, and then, you know, you have prediction markets um, like Omen, which is great. And then there's Augur, which is uh, uh, coming out so at the end of the month. Uh, so there's a lot, a lot of uh, Ethereum applications uh, coming out that I'm definitely excited about. Um, and I'm also just 
excited by the fact that like, in some of the non-Ethereum communities that I'm uh, kind of close to, like, people are increasingly just starting to pay attention to Ethereum. So like, one of the things I tweeted recently is um, there was this article um, about... Um, it was this a Nigerian person um, uh, that was uh, basically describing a proposal for a new uh, spelling system for, I think it was the um, Igbo and like one other uh, of language that's common in Nigeria. Um, and when I read through that article, I saw at the end of the article, um, there was an Ether donation option. And uh, there was a comment box where the co- this was one of those kind uh, of post comments that go directly on the Ethereum blockchain sort of things, right? So that's one example. And then another example I just saw like in, in the rationalist community is people are just starting to link, link to some of these um, Omen prediction markets more and more, right? So like- I mean, I still think are, these are anecdotal, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah. by and large, it, at I the agree. moment, it's DeFi, and mm. before that, it was ICs. I'm not trying to say right. it's not used for these other things, but how does it make yeah. you feel that it is used you've for been those a little bit? Things? Yeah, mm. I guess like what we're what I'm my, like my goal is to kind of empower all of these other use cases that uh, you know we like, um, and I guess hope that each that these uh, kind of more hypey use cases are all like they might be big individually but they're but just because they're so unsustainable individually they only each last for like one or two years um so uh, you know it is a like it's definitely a long game right like i feel like the ratio of uh like things that i'm excited about to just like financial speculating things has definitely improved between 2017 and 2020, right? So, you know, in 2017, there was this big ICO craze, but, and there are also kind of off in the corner a couple of people using Ethereum for, well, in, what was it back then? I mean, like there was Augur and Augur had like a couple of dozen users and like maybe there were people trying to make a DAO and there were people just using ETH for payments. So in, that, in 2017, Maker didn't even exist yet, or at least it wasn't on chain. It was just a project, right? And in 2020, ICOs uh, kind of did their boom and bust and they've collapsed. Um, but now we have DeFi and we have yield farming. And like, I'm definitely not expecting, you know, yield farming to be a multi-billion dollar industry two years from now. <laughs> um, I mean, unless, of course, you count staking as yield farming, like staking technically has yield, but like whatever it'll be, it'll be a much more kind of subdued and boring thing. Like that's a prediction I'm happy to make. But I think uh, kind of the more interesting use cases of Ethereum are, are going to stay and they're only going to grow stronger. So that's my hope in terms of like what we can do to help realize that hope. And I think one thing is to just help some of these other applications that kind of advertise themselves and uh, kind of get more attention and get at, at, in the community is one thing. And it's one thing that we've definitely been uh, kind of trying to do. Aside from that, like just aside from these the kind of deliberate efforts to kind of either help these applications develop or kind of improve these applications uh, and of social status, and there's definitely a limit to how much we can do. So... And what do you think is the most optimal way for DeFi projects to distribute their tokens? Yeah, this is a tough question, right? Because like I recognize the challenge that these projects are in, right? Because um, 
if you're going to launch with a token, you have to distribute the token. Um, and if you, you have to distribute the token somehow, and in 2009, the cool thing was proof of work and proof of work was very nice and democratic. But now, you know, we, yeah, we hate proof of work and proof of work is like neither democratic nor necessary. Then in 2017, it's like, you know, if you want to distribute your coins, you sell your coins. And now ICOs are not hip anymore. So like, what do you, you know, then in, in 2018 to 19, we had airdrops and like, and the problem with airdrops, of course, is that you get nothing for them and people, and it's not clear how effective they are in actually kind of creating interest for your ecosystem. I grant that there is a genuine challenge here. And that's a big part of why I'm not willing to just go all out and criticizing some of these projects, right? I mean, there is a twofold challenge, right? One part of the twofold challenge is basically that like the economics of building anything cyber um, tend, are often very screwed up, basically because you're building something that has a zero marginal cost, right? You're building something where it's, um, you know, there's a lot of costs involved in just building everything out at the beginning. But then once you've built something, then the cost of like distributing each additional unit of like ability to participate is, is close to free. But the problem is that if you just make your, pro your thing close to free, then like how do you pay for additional development? And this was like one of the big problems of just the whole internet. And launching a token was this kind of one way of kind of finally being able to break out of that trap. And now, and so of course people want to launch tokens. And then if you don't do the token route, then like what can you do? Well, you can apply to the Ethereum Foundation and like maybe the Ethereum Foundation will give you a $250,000 grant, which is already much better than three years ago or where it would have given you a $10,000 grant. Um, like there's still this uh, kind of difference between like the scale of thing that people want to build and the scale of financing that you, know, you can support that way. So yeah, and I I definitely understand that these project teams are facing tough challenges and that we don't have uh, and great solutions to direct them towards. So yield farming is or liquidity mining or whatever it is is definitely like one of these paths that people have tried, and I think I, like. Some level of that kind of distribution is definitely okay. Like I think uh, some level of this idea that, you know, if you have a project, a sum system and that system has a fee in it, then like refunding that fee in protocol tokens basically distributes protocol tokens to your users. And that's really nice and wonderful. Like there is a, a level of that which is legitimate. Like I think it becomes illegitimate when basically you're refunding people more money to use the protocol than, than they're spending to use the protocol. And so people end up just like dunking their coins and getting money out without actually like using the protocol. And I think like in the long run, if projects do that, what's going to happen is that people are just going to like professionalize farming and they're going to say, Hey, give us our coins and, or give us your coins and we'll just like keep on sticking your coins into all of these projects that are offering rewards. And like we're not actually going to be part of their communities because why should we? Uh, yeah. And so, yeah, that's kind of the equilibrium that I think will happen, which is part of why I'm comfortable kind of criticizing extreme liquidity farming as being like, unsustainable. Like there's some level of it, which I think there's some level of liquidity farming, which is fine. There's some level of airdrops, which is fine. I mean, I'm looking forward to per person airdrops as well. Um, I'm even looking forward to sales with per person caps even. I mean, DAICOs could still be done, or even just kind of things that bootstrap into being DAOs from day one um, are also interesting. I mean, this whole kind of, like, 
distribute coins directly to developers thing is interesting. You know, Handshake uh, kind of did, did something like that with part of their distribution model. And I know like even just the concept of developer free mines in general is kind of that. Um, but like the problem with coming up with something in that direction that's good is that you need a governance mechanism and the governance mechanisms are hard. We'll keep going. We'll keep figuring out better things. Another big trend on DeFi the, these last few months really is Bitcoin on Ethereum. It's been skyrocketing. <laughs> and at the moment of recording, it's about $160 million worth of Bitcoin is on Ethereum. What do you think is the significance of this trend and where do you think it could go? I, am, I think that there's just a lot of people who want to like both hold Bitcoins and have the conveniences of Ethereum DeFi. Like these Bitcoin on Ethereum projects satisfy that need. And I think uh, in the medium term, you could even see, you know, Bitcoin on Ethereum getting into rollups. And then we have like another Bitcoin, like hyperscalable layer two protocol. Uh, so I think it's a combination of like DeFi demand and just demand, like, especially kind of going further into the future for just some of Ethereum's other conveniences. So. Where will this go? I don't know. I mean, at this point, there's definitely demand. There's definitely more and more people who are interested in the kind of straddling the line between the Bitcoin and Ethereum uh, kind of ecosystems, both in terms of communities, as we've uh, kind of seen on Twitter and other places, and in terms of just like what they use, right? Bitcoin on Ethereum. One thing that could happen is that some of these people are uh, just realize that like, hey, why, you know, for on Ethereum, then why not just use ETH as an asset? Um, another thing that could happen is that there's just more and more demand for this and Ethereum becomes kind of the primary place where Bitcoin activity happens. Um, and then if that happens, like one of the challenges and one of my worries with these bridges is uh, that basically the bridges are all right now trusted, right? So like the problem is that Bitcoin, like, the Ethereum blockchain can run smart contracts that verify the Bitcoin blockchain, but Bitcoin doesn't really have this kind of advanced uh, smart contract capability. And so you can't have Bitcoin addresses that verify the Ethereum blockchain. And like all you can have is either single signatures or multi-sigs. And so the problem is that if you have one of these multi-sigs and you start having, you know, 557,000 Bitcoins inside one of these multi-sigs, then there might be an incentive for that team to run away and that starts becoming more and more of a systemic risk, right? I guess one of the ways of thinking about this is that like a lot of uh, Bitcoin people are very excited about Liquid, but Liquid, it's ultimately a permission consortium chain uh, to use the uh, Tim Swanson term for it. I just, I just love using that term to poke people. <laughs> um, it's a permission consortium chain. It's trusted and ultimately... Uh, like there is a committee of people who have the ability to basically take the coins out and uh, pretty much uh, take the coins for themselves. And so if you're willing to take that trade off, well, why not just instead take that trade off with the Ethereum network, um, essentially, because the Ethereum network already has like so much stuff on it. Like that's where I see some of the kind of the psychology of this being. Then, you know, if it gets much bigger, then you do have this systemic risk issue and then the question is, well, how does the systemic risk end up getting resolved, right? One um, possibility, of course, is that we start moving to these uh, kind of collateralized um, uh, Bitcoin on ETH things like TBTC network, 
But the problem with that is that if you start going to like 557,000 Bitcoin, uh, Bitcoins on Ethereum, then you need a huge amount of uh, ETH to like, you need literally like half of all ETH basically being collateral for those coins. <laughs> Another interesting approach, um, and this is something that I don't think anyone's talked about before, is that if like a substantial portion of Bitcoin ends up being on Ethereum, then what happens if Bitcoin miners start taking matters into their own hands and Bitcoin miners basically pre-commit and they say, we're going to soft fork away, like we're going to invalidate any chain that includes transactions that illegally withdraw from these, um, from these multi-sigs without the permission of whoever actually owns those coins based on what happens on the Ethereum side, right? So like, what if Bitcoin miners start enforcing the rule that withdrawals from the bridge actually like are only valid if they're valid according to the rules in the, in the contracts on the Ethereum side. And if you do that, then uh, basically you would end up making a kind of the Bitcoin chain really tightly coupled to the Ethereum chain. And that would be a really, like, if you start doing that, then like, even a lot of Bitcoin side security concerns just start be- start becoming much less. And that would be just an interesting future to explore even theoretically. But like this is all kind of going extreme in one direction, right? The other direction, of course, is that this just all remains a fairly minor and kind of niche interest of people. And that, you know, there's just, I don't know, it keeps on, it, it keeps on being there and there's an activity keeps on happening, but kind of the bulk of Ethereum activity continues to be in other pastures. I mean, that's the more boring side. And like, don't let the fact that I spent, you know, five minutes talking about the exciting side and one minute talking about the boring side uh, make you think that I think the exciting side has a five times higher chance of happening than the boring <laughs> side. And no, it's not. It's just five times more exciting, right? So, you know, there's a big chance that the that the, the boring thing will just happen. And that's fine. I mean, these are all just experiments that have some probability that's like individually a low probability of like becoming really interesting and big. But kind of on the whole, there's always something that ends up uh, making a big difference. Let's switch to talking about how the crypto space has become kind of part of the geopolitical balance of power, I would say, in the last couple of years. And one of the pieces of news that involves Ethereum is that China's blockchain service network is being built to interact with the public Ethereum blockchain. And I wondered what your feelings were about that. It's being compared to how China's ByteDance um, has the TikTok version, which is the version used outside of China. But as we've seen in the last few years, China obviously has been perpetrating these human rights abuses, you know, with the concentration camps of the Uyghurs. It's been using its economic power to censor organizations like the NBA or the World Health Organization. There are concerns about data privacy and security for users of apps like TikTok. Is there any risk to users of Ethereum who connect to BSN nodes? I definitely don't see how, uh, like, the BSN would have the ability to kind of break the the Ethereum network. And unless this is all somehow, you know, crazy five, four dimensional chess, um, a, a kind of like a front for some kind of 51% attack, but I see that chance as being very unlikely. Like the, the somewhat more realistic concern, of course, is that, you know, there's nodes that are spy nodes and they'll like inform the Chinese government of what IP addresses are sending what transactions and like, 
that's not just the Chinese government concerned. Of course, there's a, there's a, you know, the U.S. government and like, you don't even have to go into conspiracy theories. There's Chainalysis, the company, which is known to be working with U.S. law enforcement and like, it's in their economic interest to work with other people's law enforcement too. Ethereum users should definitely be operating under the assumption that kind of at network level, there's a lot of spy nodes going around. You know, if they want privacy, they should basically combine blockchain level privacy with things like tornado.cash or some of the better things that are coming out with uh, network level privacy. Like, you know, if you have a transaction to send that needs privacy, you just like hop on a VPN or whatever. Um, or, or doesn't have to be a VPN, could be Tor, could be any of this, um, any of these things. No, that, that's definitely in like one aspect that. Um, people should definitely be uh, kind of thinking about. Of course, uh, the other uh, kind of geopolitical aspect of this is that, um, you know, blockchains are potentially a kind of the one in kind of environment where applications from kind of all of these different places around the world can just have come onto the chain without, and, you know, they're not going to just get immediately blocked by like whatever country doesn't happen, happens to not like them at that point in time. That's interesting. Like, I mean, I definitely think that like the whole kind of splinter net trends that we're start that we're seeing with, um, you know, obviously it started with you kind know, of the Chinese firewall for, for a long time. And then, again, you know, now these kind of potential concerns about the U.S. banning TikTok and then India banning 50 Chinese applications and then, you know, Russia doing its thing and now the EU, a couple of people in the EU interested in uh, doing their thing. Like, I definitely think that that kind of trend is very harmful and it potentially like really risks uh, and like destroying a lot of the kind of uh, brightness and good that I think comes out of the Internet um, just as a, a way for the world to come to uh, to come together without that coming together having to be intermediated by you know all of these politicians with big guns and it may be uh, and, and of course the original internet in a lot of ways has just failed to live up to that promise right because, and especially because a lot of activity has just moved to these kind of centralized corporate platforms and the blockchain space it has a chance of remaining the one part of the internet that's not that which is interesting and could have a lot of complicated consequences. I mean, back to China, I have uh, no idea like what people are going to end up using the, like the BSN to kind of to, to build on, in, on Ethereum. It's still like very early and not clear. I mean, like historically, what, what, like there hasn't even like been much kind of institutionally sanctioned public chain act, uh, uh, activity at all so far, right? Like just because, like, and it's definitely been more kind of private chain oriented. But in a lot of ways, kind of the global mood has, of of the crypto space has shifted from uh, private chains to public chains, and so that's one of those places where you have to like pretty much either split off or adapt. So we'll see. And I I, I definitely like that like, the space is uh, like entering dicey territory in some ways but you know at the same time this is literally a space um, w which was uh, founded with um, a basically a link to a news article that was criticizing a big a big financial bailout so like you know if if you're afraid of diciness then what the hell did, did you think you're getting into um, <laughs> 
In that regard, I actually wanted to ask also about some of these other phenomena that we're seeing with China's DCEP, its digital yuan Mm -hmm. rolling out. And a Mm -hmm. lot of people say that this could be China's play Mm -hmm. to reduce the Mm -hmm. global reliance on the U.S. dollar. Meanwhile, Mm -hmm. we've also got the upcoming Libra, which through Mm -hmm. Facebook and all of the different Facebook platforms will have a larger target Mm -hmm. user base than the population of China. And then Mm -hmm. on top of that, we've also got the central bank digital currencies from other countries that will probably be rolling out. And Uh meanwhile... At the same time, we've mm-hmm. also got decentralized cryptocurrencies. So when you kind of look at all of these different things mm-hmm. that are either waiting in the wings or already coming on stage, where do you think these trends will go? Yeah, so I think you know, there's different ways to look at central bank uh, digital currencies. Right? You know, there's, first of all, kind of the macroeconomic ways of looking at them and just thinking about, you know, what are they? Like, will they end up displacing commercial banks um, and all of those issues? Um, Another way to think about a look at it is um, also just from like a privacy point of view, which is something that a lot of people in the crypto space uh, kind of care about. And of course, um, you know, nobody's expecting DCEP to be anywhere remotely privacy preserving kind of in the way that uh, crypto people would li- would like. And that's probably not not going to be true of uh, CBDCs in general. Um, but At the same time, the other thing that's happening is basically this uh, kind of change in like what the government's role is with respect to the monetary system. And it's, it feels almost like a push toward kind of government as international platform, right? So like this is something that like, for example, Estonia has been kind of trying to do for the last decade, right? You know, you have your e-residency and you can kind of be an e-Estonian and you can be part of this Estonian e-community, even if you've never once uh, set foot in Estonia, the country. Um, and they kind of talk excitedly about how, you know, this is the future of government as a platform. And central bank digital currencies might end up being the first big kind of mainstreaming of government as a platform. You could imagine, you know, things like DCP being used outside of China. Now, I, mean, I think like China in particular will, will have... Uh, Kind of more challenges doing that than a lot of other countries just because of you know all of the trust issues and the politics and all of that. Um, but at the same time, like it's especially if you look into central bank digital currencies more broadly, like it's something that you could imagine like governments creating digital currencies even specifically with the goal of being of them being used in a broader context, right? And so you could even imagine, you know, places like Switzerland saying, hey, we're going to create a digital coin and we're going to just create this bit, um, basically use this to expand our influence on the global stage. Um, and this could end up being like a way for countries to make this kind of political power push. Um, and in terms of the consequences of this, I mean, you know, I mean, jurisdictional competition is uh, kind of definitely great in a lot of ways. And it could easily like give um, access um, to people who live in like not very competent uh, jurisdictions, like basically access to the um, access to services provided by by kind of international governments and international entities that are that are much uh, kind of higher in competence. Uh, so um, much more competent, not much more incompetent. <laughs> so. No, I mean, it, it'll be uh, interesting to see, I guess, 
it'll be and then the other thing that'll be interesting to see is like the extent to which it's possible for these digital currencies to interoperate with public chains right so like could you have a decentralized exchange between a cbdc and ethereum Mm. and maybe you could right because Ultimately, the number of things you need to have to create a decentralized exchange is not that high. You just need the ability for the Ethereum side to be able to verify transactions that are happening on the other side. And if you can do that, then you can jump and exchange between the two systems even trustlessly. Right? And I mean, potentially, you could even do it in a way that's like very privacy preserving. And so like on the C, uh, on the CBDC side, it just looks like another transaction. And then there's smart contracts on the Ethereum side that kind of ensure that everything happens correctly. So once you have decentralized exchanges between these systems, then suddenly you have this kind of much more liquid uh, kind of global financial environment, which would also be interesting to see. Definitely. Mm. One of the biggest black eyes for Ethereum has been the indictment of head of special projects, Virgil Griffith, for allegedly mm. helping the North Korean regime evade sanctions. Virgil was one of the highest ranking people within the Ethereum Foundation, and mm. you knew he was going to go to North Korea beforehand and even urged him to enjoy himself while he was there. Did it not occur to you or anyone at the foundation that his going there might end up harming the foundation's reputation? Um, I mean, I think, especially given that he was just uh, going as a uh, as an individual, and he was uh, kind of very clear on that in multiple points. I guess and the big thing is that you know the Ethereum Foundation definitely has a kind of for better or for worse culture of respecting its members' autonomy, basically. And I mean, you can see that in a lot of ways. I mean, you can see that in you know, foundation developers arguing with each other on Twitter. You can see that with uh, Virgil, you know, independently deciding that it would be cool to check out North Koreans and, and you know, seeing well, you know, what their watching conferences are up to, and just people working on a lot of independent things. So I think like that's a culture that's definitely done kind of a lot more good than uh, uh, than harm for the foundation. And, and I definitely don't think that there's that many people that like, think, you know, Ethereum Foundation bad because you know, Vir- Virgil did, uh, did this North Korea trip. At least that, that's been my own, my own general impression, right? That it's the, and in terms of the news that's kind of happened once and then quieted down after that. Like, I guess the con, the, I mean, the long-term consequences of all of that whole trip in general just seem like, okay, you know, he went once and then there was another conference and he is like obviously not able to go or not able to go. And like, I forgot it might've even been canceled because of the virus. And then in the future, realistically, he's not going to go to any of those either. The things that they'll do with blockchains are the things that they'll do with blockchains. I think regardless of um, like, you know, hoops, who pops over for a visit for a couple of days. Um, well, but actually, I wanted to ask, so just beyond uh-huh. the foundation or what the government mm-hmm. says about what Virgil mm-hmm. did, I just wanted to ask from the perspective of Ethereum's reputation as being, you know, the unicorns and rainbows, cryptocurrency, mm-hmm. I mean, doing anything with or for the what is the most brutal regime on the planet is, as Alex Glenstein of the Human Rights Foundation pointed out, 
the least cypherpunk thing anyone could do. So just from that perspective alone, did it ever occur to either you or anyone within Ethereum that it might not be a good idea for virtual to do that? I mean, I think there, there's definitely people who are opposed to it from the beginning. And, uh, and there was definitely people who were fine with it from, uh, from the beginning. I mean, I guess, I don't know. And this is definitely one of those questions where like it's, it, it's hard to be certain um, kind of after the fact, and it's even be hard, even harder to be a certain ahead of time. Like, I definitely think that, like this uh, kind of view that, you know, because a country's government does something bad means that, you know, you have to kind of completely, completely um, kind of ostracize the country and you can't even take one trip to a blockchain conference. Like, is it even necessarily clear that that's true? I don't know. Um, so, I don't know. I mean, I don't, I definitely don't kind of claim certainty that it was, um, that it was the right choice. But, uh, and I think, uh, also saying that uh, just uh, going out to, uh, uh different, uh, jur- different jurisdictions and, and, um, including the unfriendly, the unfriendly ones and, uh, kind of giving them a, uh, taking a chance to listen to them is kind of outright a bad thing. I think like that opinion is also, I've been a bit too extreme to be able to say confidently. Uh, so, you know, I, I don't think you listened to this podcast episode I did with a human rights activist and North Korean defector, mm-hmm. Yunmi Park, but I will send it to you because in it, she talks about what it was like to live under that regime. And um, it's really, mm-hmm. truly just a brutal dictatorship. And it's mm-hmm. just a country that has, um, mm-hmm. You know, no, you know, I'm definitely, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'm definitely aware there's there's lots of very terrible things happening in North Korea. Like, I'm not denying any of those things. Like, all right. Well, yeah. uh, on a related note, I wanted to ask also about Stephen Naryoff, a technologist and lawyer mm-hmm. who helped Ethereum with its crowd sale. He was charged with extortion of a company that was trying to hold an ICO in late 2017, and. Between this and Virgil, I wonder, do you feel Ethereum in general mm. needs to do a better job of, of vetting the people who become involved with the foundation or other core members of the project? Steven is definitely a separate case. Like uh, Ethereum before about 2015, like there, there's definitely, you know, this founding team and the founding team had like a lot of characters that today I definitely don't approve of. And at the time I had no idea how to even like tell apart good people, good people from bad people. Um, and pretty much everyone seemed reasonable to me. And so like at the time I definitely didn't have the ability to kind of detect the problems in someone like Steven Naryoff. And I think since then the Ethereum foundation has gotten much better. Um, since then, like a lot of the kind of characters that, that caused us a lot of damage at the beginning, we've, uh, successfully distance ourselves from and i think uh, kind of more recently we have a team that you know, in general we're very happy with and and i'm definitely not willing to allow kind of virgil to be put into you know, into the bad character bucket just because he uh, was uh, you know more geopolitically open-minded than than, um, than a lot of other people like i'm i'm very happy to kind of burn reputation points def- defending him to some extent there he is like no and that's Definitely not the same thing as like what Steven did, which involved like huge amounts of like fraud and behaving in, I think, 
definitely variable like ways that the that made women around him very uncomfortable at the very least and all of those things like doing that you're that's a shitty character man and like and i'm definitely happy i'm better at that i think the hearing foundation is better at detecting him than it was at detecting a lot of other people but you know virgil's still a friend and i'm looking forward to him uh, no longer being in um, house uh, confinement soon over the years the ethereum foundation has also come under fire for being unusually opaque which is seemingly at mm. odds with the purported transparency of the blockchain world. I, I don't know if it doesn't seem to me the foundation has made much more effort to become more transparent. There continues to be no org chart. There are a lot of people involved in the foundation who have no title, but have a lot of influence. Do you have plans to address this situation or are you comfortable with this? I definitely would have to dispute the charge that the Ethereum foundation is in this in this incredibly opaque organization. Like, I think, uh, I mean, first of all, there's all of these set of bi-weekly uh, kind of very frequent updates from each of the individual teams on, you know, the, the clients and like all the software and the individual projects that they're working on. Uh, there's all of these developer calls that are public. Uh, I mean, we very frequently publish information about what our finances are. And regarding org charts, I think, uh, I mean, the challenge there is just the Ethereum Foundation's organization is definitely kind of not conventional in a lot of ways. And so it's hard to communicate that, right? And it's like the formal chart is not even necessarily going to reflect the underlying reality of how people interact with each other. Like I think, uh, I I remember like something like a year ago, I think it was, um, I think it was Virgil that published the kind of an actual chart of like basically who and who talks to whom in the Ethereum Foundation. And that chart was basically just like automatically generated from the results of giving people surveys. And that ended up just being a much more accurate description of like who does what in the Ethereum Foundation than, you know, any kind of description of the formal structure could have been. And was that made public? Hmm. I, I don't remember. That's, you know, this is something that I'll probably have to look up. But, and I guess, like, the larger point is that, like, there's a lot of people kind of complaining about lack of transparency, but the thing that I don't see as much is just specific items of things that they want to be transparent about. Like, in terms of just outputs of the Ethereum Foundation, I feel like we, we try hard to be transparent and we publish blog posts detailing our grants. We publish blog posts detailing our, like, all the different project teams and what they've been working on. Manoa publish, like, fairly regularly what the Ethereum Foundation's financial situation is and all of these things. So if people could just say in kind of more specific and explicit terms, like here is one thing that I don't know that I would like to know. And that's definitely something that I think would definitely help me and help us a lot. On Twitter, Anne Connolly, who's blockchain faculty at Singularity University, asked, are you concerned about the lack of diversity in Ethereum, particularly in development? And she asked if that could also potentially impact the success of Ethereum in the long run. Mm-hmm. I definitely feel like we've tried hard to be diverse, to be diverse in a lot of ways and even just trying hard to like nurture communities in a lot of different countries is uh, probably the uh, the one biggest example. And then we, you know, we have a lot of uh, different kinds of uh, people 
on kind of different layers of our team. You know, we have and a lot of people from the U.S. And we have Aya, who is our, our executive director, and she has been like kind of pushing in a different perspective and like focusing on inclusion and a lot of these other things. Like we've had some teams in Europe, some teams in Asia, some team uh, increasingly uh, a couple of people based in India. Um, so on that dimension, there's definitely a lot of things that we've uh, kind of tried to do. Uh, I mean, I'm sure that there's a kind of entire uh, kind of communities and sub-communities that we've just uh, kind of completely failed to kind of reach out um, reach out to and integrate with. And last year, we've uh, tried to um, just to get into the African community more, for example. Um, but you know, even still, like there's a, there is a lot that we're missing, I'm sure. The challenge there is just that like any organizations and any community's eyes are ultimately kind of limited. Um, and so like, if you think there's groups of people that the Ethereum ecosystem has been ignoring, then that's uh, something that I'm sure we, once again, you know, we'd be very kind of happy to hear about. And it's something we always, we always appreciate getting help in. I mean, there's also just that kind of current that we have to deal with um, in terms or just in terms of, you know, what kinds of people by default sort of get interested in crypto by themselves, right? Like crypto tends to be, you know, heavily kind of US focused, heavily focused on like wealthier people in the, um, in the United States, especially, um, you know, like a very kind of very particular demographics that are kind of interested in like computer science and monetary theory and all of these things. Uh, so, you know, there are groups that have tried to uh, kind of make Ethereum relevant for other communities. Like there's, you know, all of these different exchanges in different countries that just try to support people, you know, using ETH as a way of moving money around. I mean, to give a more dicey example, there's like the stuff that Amin has done around sex workers, um, which is, you know, definitely far, uh, kind of far away from a kind of the kinds of communities that crypto typically reaches out to, you know, even though sex worker communities definitely have a lot, like a lot of problems around just getting discriminated against in a whole bunch of ways. Um, I mean, Soleimani. Then, yes, I mean, Soleimani. Uh, so, yeah, and I guess we've been trying. Um, we always welcome pointers on like who we can be, uh, who we're missing and uh, who we can reach out to better. So here we are five years after the launch of Ethereum. Where would you like to see Ethereum go in the next five years? Getting Ethereum 2.0 done is really important. Um, <laughs> yeah, Hopefully before that's... the end of the next five years. Mm -hmm. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, I think uh, getting Ethereum to the point where like that list of applications I mentioned earlier, kind of the things that I'm excited about people using Ethereum for um, would actually is something that like lots and lots of people use Ethereum for and where Ethereum is something that is just a regular part of like uh, people's lives in a lot of different communities and a lot of different contexts and isn't just about like something by and for Ethereum people. Yeah. And I think getting the technology to that point and just getting to the point where you, you actually have like 
lots of people from in lots of places from around the world deriving value from Ethereum and then just getting both of those two things done, I think would be a great place to be. And do you have any general predictions about crypto that you want to make uh, about the next five years? Hmm. I don't know. I I think, well, there's things that I can say. So like one thing that I can say is that um, the research side of the crypto space has definitely already made a kind of very sharp move away from being like, hey, you know, let's uh, like think in very abstract terms and let's figure out the just what things exist in the first place to just, okay, we know exactly what can be done and what can't be done. Let's keep just making improvements to the things that we know that we can do. And like a lot of Ethereum research has moved into that second category already. Um, a lot of uh, Ethereum research um you know, around things like sharding, proof of stake, zero knowledge proofs, like all of these things has mo- already moved into that kind of more incremental category. And I think five years from now, we'll be even further there. Like, I think right now we're in kind of that transition from, you know, research, abstract research to development and optimization. And I think five years from now, we'll be thoroughly in a, a kind of optimization phase. I'm generally expecting that crypto will just... Uh, kind of continue with the long march to just being more normal and being more just kind of a part of people's lives that everyone just expects to exist. And that'll be a a good change in a lot of ways. Great. Let's hope so, because currently my friends think what I do is kind of weird. But anyway, Mm -hmm. so where can people learn more about you and Ethereum? Um, ethereum Ethereum.org. Perfect. All right. Well, thank you so much for coming on Unchained. Thank you. Thanks so much for joining us today. To learn more about Vitalik and Ethereum, check out the show notes for this episode. Don't forget, you can now watch video recordings of the shows on the Unchained YouTube channel. Go to youtube.com slash C slash Unchained Podcast and subscribe today. Unchained is produced by me, Laura Shin, with help from Anthony Yoon, Daniel Ness, and the team at CLK Transcription. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.